I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author awesome, a bookseller bingo, a member of a book club marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. We've talked about many books on this podcast with an Appalachian setting, and in the Trump and post-Trump era, talking heads have been trying to understand Appalachia. After the publishing of Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, a book about Appalachia that many people love to hate, a whole slew of books by diverse Appalachian writers came out that showed other versions of this complicated region of the country. Nima Avashia's new book of essays, Another Appalachia, Growing Up Indian and Queer in a Mountain Place, really demonstrates those contradictions and strong sense of place. Nima is a middle school teacher who lives in Boston, but she grew up in a small West Virginia town that was built up around the chemical industry that used the state's coal to power its plants. Her parents migrated from India, and Nima had what she felt was a magical childhood. But as much as she loved her hometown and home state, as she became an adult, she had to come to terms with what home means when you're an Indian American, Hindu, vegetarian, and queer, growing up in a place that is overwhelmingly white, meat and potatoes, and Christian. Her essays ask interesting questions about what it means to love a place that doesn't always love you back. We want to remind you about the Forward Radio Pledge Drive. Many of our listeners who hear us in podcast form around the country may not realize that we are also a weekly radio show in Louisville, Kentucky on Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a nonprofit and listener-supported station. And Forward Radio is celebrating its five-year anniversary. And as part of the celebration, the station is having a pledge drive through April 9th, which will be followed that day with a birthday party for the station from 1 to 4 at the Tim Faulkner Gallery here in Louisville. There will be food, drinks, live music, and speakers. No donation is too small. If you would like to make a donation to help bring programming like ours to the airwaves, go to www.forwardradio.org. But first, Carrie, you're headed to Ecuador. In fact, probably when this is airing, you will already be there. I may be on a beach in the Galapagos or, you know, looking at flamingos or if I'm lucky, I'll see a blue-footed booby. That's that's my goal. That's what I really want to see. When you say you're going to be on a beach in the Galapagos, you're not like planning to wear a bikini and lay on the beach of the Galapagos. I mean, it's not that kind of beach, is it? Well, honestly, I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. I've never been. So I don't know. But we are supposed to like have a beach day and we're supposed to go snorkeling uh, a couple of times. So I really don't know, but I've had, you know, some skin cancers. And so I try to be very careful. So the end of last summer, I bought a long sleeved swimsuit just to protect my arms and my upper body. It's like a one piece, right? Except it has long sleeves and it like zips up, but I kind of feel like a James Bond because the front zips up and. Oh, yeah. You know, I kind of feel like super sexy, super sexy, like James Bond girl or something. And if you lay on the beach on the Galapagos Islands, I want a picture of you on your towel with your sexy swimsuit (laughs) and those big humongous turtles that live for a hundred years right next to you. I don't think that's where they live. So we're going to go see those big humongous turtles, but they live up in, it's called the Highlands. So they live up high. I don't think they live on the beach. 
or but I don't know. Like I said, I have never been there. I know nothing. My knowledge of the Galapagos is like Darwin. Like he was there. That's pretty much all I know. So what about the Komodo dragons or the Komodo dragons? Those no 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 no. Okay, so okay, so all we really know is a blue-footed booby. I know blue-footed boobies. Yeah. So well. Did you know that there is a trope, especially with rom-coms, but with other books, too, that I have discovered, and you and I are this trope? Oh, it yeah. Is, it's the grumpy, sunny trope, where ah. with the main characters, there's one that's grumpy and one that's happy or sunny. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's Carrie and I. We're the grumpy, sunny trope. So, But sometimes those tropes, they're based in truth. So I love a, yeah. I love a book that has a grumpy, sunny trope, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good balance, you know. I was having sort of a bad day and I texted you because I was editing an episode and I said something like, uh, you know, all of my darn cheerfulness is super annoying when I'm in a bad <laughs> mood. <laughs> I love to send those gifs. I just replied back with somebody saying, keeping my mouth shut. That's and right. Was that like, was the best. That was the best thing to do. Yeah. I'm just going to sit over here and not say anything. But I did I did appreciate that because yeah, that's how the grumps of the world feel like, oh my but God, why are must, you so happy? You must not feel that way all the time or you wouldn't you couldn't stand to be around me. So it must just be occasionally. I'm hoping that it's just occasionally that you feel that way. I mean <laughs> <laughs> I don't find it annoying. That's just, it's just the way it is. It's your personality and is one way, and my personality is another way. And well, first of all, this show wouldn't be happening if it was left up to me. And second of all, it would be like, "Hey, life's a downer. Let's listen to this episode." You know, I mean, I think we're a good uh, mix. I told my husband, "I'm like, Amy has got to want to kill me because she'll be like, what do you think of this?'" And I'm like, "Meh." <laughs> What do you think of this? Meh. I'm like, that's got to be annoying. Like, I annoy myself sometimes. So, But when you are enthusiastic about something, I know you really mean it. That's true. And that's I do true. appreciate that. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to say before we move on to talking to Nima is that I would like to encourage people, if you like our show, you like what we're doing, Go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So I think even now you can leave reviews on Spotify. It doesn't take too long, but it would really help us out and, uh, to gain new listeners. And if and if you write a review, it would like warm our hearts. It would make even Carrie's cold, cold heart big and warm. And that sounds weird. How, what kind of heart do you have? <laughs> No, I, I have a cold, cold heart, and I'm not even sure that that would do anything. But um, but people are certainly encouraged to try. <laughs> I sort of have a Grinch heart, but I don't know. You know, depending on what somebody says about this show, it, it could make my heart swell. What is it? Three sizes? Grow three sizes? Yeah. Don't let her fool you. She is not a Grinch. She is a very kind, sensitive person. She just doesn't put up with any guff from anybody, but she likes to pretend. <laughs> Enough of this psychobabble. <laughs> I want to say about Nima's book before we talk to her, it's a small book, but it is packed with ideas. And we talked to her for an hour and we could have gone on and on talking about uh, all the issues in this book. So 
uh, highly recommend, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. And are you ready to talk to Nima? I'm ready. Nima, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Nima, I am excited because you, like me, are also a former West Virginian. I grew up in Parkersburg. My mother is from the Beckley region. You grew up a little between like Charleston and Huntington. So we know a lot of the same areas. Yeah, not, state. nothing is that far from anything else. So. No, it's not. I'm a huge fan of Appalachian literature. But one of the things that, you know, you learn when you read some Appalachian literature and you talk to people from that area is that there's always one word that comes up repeatedly, and that is the word complicated. It's a complicated place. And your book, Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place, which was published on March 1st of this year, shows those contradictions. So what did you go into this book thinking you were going to write about? And did that change? I don't think it changed because I think my intention when I wrote the book was for people to see the complication. Because while I think that people from Appalachia know that it's a complicated place, I don't think that the dominant narrative around Appalachia is complicated. When you think about some of the um, highest grossing books that have been published about the region, they actually make it seem really uncomplicated and they offer pretty simplistic narratives about who an Appalachian is and what Appalachia is and what's going on there. And so complexity was actually my intention from the outset was to say like, when I tell people I'm from West Virginia, like they don't believe me. (laughs) You know, the reaction is you're from West Virginia. You can't be from West Virginia. There are no Indian people in West Virginia. And so automatically, like, I feel a need to complicate to say, you know, that's actually wrong. And there are actually a chunk of Indian immigrants and Filipino immigrants who moved to West Virginia in the 70s and 80s. And let me try to push your thinking. Let me try to complicate your narrative is actually one of the main drivers for writing this book. So when did you first begin putting these ideas that led to these essays on paper? When did you start writing them? Uh, started really in 2015. Um, I would say the lead up to the 2016 election really was a big motivator because I've said this to other folks, but I felt like, you know, the minute I left Appalachia, I started to learn all those ugly narratives. I mean, people are not shy about sharing what they think about West Virginia or Appalachia. I don't know why, but people don't seem to have any shame about sharing stereotypes or misperceptions. You know, like I went to college in Pittsburgh and people were automatically saying things to me about, oh, I didn't know people where you're from have teeth. So, (laughs) you know, that stereotyping, like it was very present from the minute I left, but I felt like the volume on those stereotypes really got turned up around 2015, 2016. Like it just felt like the amplification of this narrative around Appalachia as a place where people vote against their self-interest and where people are supporting these candidates who are really xenophobic and racist and homophobic. It just felt like it was increasing at such a high volume. And at the same time, I felt this real dissonance where what people were saying about the place that I'm from and my feelings about the place where I'm from didn't match. And what people perceived people from Appalachia to be and what I knew people from Appalachia to be didn't match. And so For a long time, I had thought that my experience of growing up Indian in Appalachia was just this like weird blip. And then I started to be like, well, but maybe there's an opportunity here to use this blip to kind of push back on these narratives and to show people what it really looks like when there are immigrants in Appalachia and what people are navigating and where they find community and where they find comfort. Like, Can I use this story to push on those narratives and to kind of explode them? 
and to force people to think differently about this place that I love really deeply. It is hard. It is complicated. It's messy. And that's what love is too. Like love isn't neat. It's, it's all of those things. And you know, if you started writing in 2015, what was the time frame from, you know, when you pitched it to, to getting it published? Yeah, 2020. So it was the summer of 2020 when I started to query. I first kind of did the traditional route, which is you query agents mm-hmm. to see if they're interested. And not surprisingly, um, there wasn't a lot of interest in this really complicated story of being queer and Indian from Appalachia. I think people were like, uh, this is very beautiful, but we don't know how to sell it, was the reaction <laughs> I got from a lot of people, um, which was fine. For me, I took that as feedback and I was like, okay, then I got to think a different way about this. And so I pivoted pretty quickly after that first round of queries. I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I instead did a bunch of research into small press independent presses and university presses that I thought might be interested in the collection because of the work they were already doing. Mm -hmm. And so August, I started to query those presses. And by October, I had signed with WVU Press. Well, I really loved your essays because while they're very much centered in Appalachia and specifically, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Kanawha Is that right? Valley? Mm -hmm. So it's specifically centered there in West Virginia. I think so many people feel like they are outsiders within whatever community they live in. So some people are just never able to fit very well in whatever boxes other people seem to want to put them into. How does this collection speak to people who are specifically first generation Americans or queer, but also to people who may not have those identifiers, but feel like they don't fit in? I think that's what's been really powerful about readers' reactions to the book so far. The first wave of reactions was definitely from immigrant kids, from queer people, particularly from queer immigrant kids in Appalachia, (laughs) right? Like there was this like first wave of like, oh my goodness, I feel seen in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. And that was really beautiful, but probably also the thing I expected the most Mm -hmm. uh, because there isn't really a book like this that has existed for folks who are queer and immigrant in Appalachia. So that was more anticipated. What's been so interesting in the subsequent weeks is folks reaching out and saying, well, I'm none of those things. I'm not queer. My parents aren't immigrants. I'm not brown. I maybe am not even Appalachian, but like this is resonating with me regardless. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine who I went to high school with, you know, he reached out to me when he was reading the book and he was like, you know, he's a white, cis, straight man. And he shared a bunch of the bullying that he'd experienced, right? And sort of this realization that we didn't see each other as similar when we were going through it or even afterwards, but that in some ways our experiences were parallel, kind of like you're saying. That experience of exclusion, it extends to lots of people. There are many, many, many people who aren't served by these norms of Like you have to be a certain way. And if you're not that way, we make it difficult to be here. And so those responses, I think, have surprised me. I didn't expect them, but they've actually been kind of the most lovely thing because it sort of feels like in writing this very specific story about this really specific experience, the themes seem to still be universal enough that that folks are finding a connection point and are seeing themselves in the way in which like I tried to navigate difference and try to navigate bullying and try to navigate discrimination. Like I think that they are able to make those connections and I didn't anticipate it. 
So your essay, The Blue-Red Divide, is about someone who's meant a lot to you throughout your childhood posting hateful things on social media about immigrants, progressives, and, and probably a lot of other things with which you and your family identify. You know, you, you mentioned the the run-up to the 2016 ele- election. I know for myself, it was after the election that I really realized that there were people that I needed to sort of cut out of my life, not because we disagreed on policy, but because they were name calling and they were engaging in behaviors that we don't act that way. So what kind of feedback have you received from readers about that nastiness that people feel like it's okay to put out on social media? Um, Have you gotten feedback like that from people? Yeah, I have. I have had particularly I think folks from Appalachia say, and particularly I would say queer folks from Appalachia say that that essay really resonates for them, that they have people in their life who followed a similar pattern and that they've struggled to know what to do with their feelings. How do you have like such warm and tender feelings towards people and then have those feelings countered by like their presence on social media, right? Like it creates this real tension, I think, that we're all trying to navigate of like, here's what I know about you as a human being. And here's what you're showing me about yourself here. And those things don't match in my head. I don't know you to be cruel. I don't know you to be unthinking. And yet you're behaving in these ways that are cruel and unthinking. And I think the thing about that essay is it doesn't resolve at the end. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I have resolved my questions there. Um, I don't feel like I know the right answer. And I think that's true for lots of people, too. I think in some ways, a lot of us feel kind of suspended in space and time right now, not ready to just like shut the door on anyone, but also not knowing, well, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? I tried really hard in that essay to to understand where those feelings could be coming from and why that that would be happening. And I think I do feel like I have a better understanding now than I might have previously. But I also feel really wishful that we could find ways to help rural people and people in small towns that have really been abandoned by our government and by our corporate culture and by sort of almost every facet of society. I don't think that the feelings are going to change if we don't change the way we treat folks who live in those places. And if we don't find ways to sort of like hold them with empathy and that higher level empathy that I think needs to happen, it's not coming. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up falling down on each of us as individuals to figure out like, well, what are we going to do? When really I think these are like systemic issues Mm -hmm. where so much of our economy has moved to cities and has moved away from small places and there's been no plan for how we're going to take care of people in those places. Your essays, even for people who didn't grow up in West Virginia or Appalachia, are a springboard for thinking about place, specifically where we grow up, your place of childhood. So did you always have this realization about the importance of place or or did your ideas about place change as you wrote some of your essays and thought back on growing up there? So I always knew I grew up in a really special place. My mom used to call me like a, a worshiper of my street. Like uh, <laughs> so she used a word in Gujarati, the word is bhagath. And you use bhagath for somebody who's like a blind worshiper. Like they just love the place that they're from, right? Or they love something and they can't see anything wrong with it. That was me from when I was really small. I knew I was in a really special place. But what I didn't know until much later, in fact, in the process of writing this book and talking about it was the way in which that attention to place and that love of place is such a marker of Appalachian literature. 
Mm. So it was like that thing that I'd been feeling the whole time and that was really finding its way into my writing is actually one of the things that makes Appalachian writing Appalachian writing. It's really grounded in place. Place is as much a character in the writing as any person is. Uh, And so that was the surprise was that even as somebody who's like struggled to figure out like, am I Appalachian? Does my writing count as Appalachian? Like I was having all those questions and yet my writing was very much showing. The answer was yes, because of that attention to place and because of evoking place in this very specific and detailed way. And so that understanding I think has been newer for me, but the love of place... Yeah, and my mom thought I loved our street more than I loved our family. So, <laughs> that's, that's not new. <laughs> it might be that I'm more aware of it since the 2016 election. But And you mentioned this about the economic abandonment in certain regions of the country that might explain some of the ways people have lashed out politically. So talk to us about what the loss of Union Carbide has meant to the people of West Virginia in the community that you grew up in. I'm not sure that people who live in bigger cities, I don't know that they fully understand how much a small town can be dependent on one business or industry. Yeah. I mean, much of the area where I grew up, it was actually developed in relation to the chemical plants. And that started during World War II. Um, Actually, the town where I went to high school is named Nitro because it was where nitroglycerin was produced. Um, during World War II, right? And so the plants went up and then housing went up around those plants in order to house the workers at the plants. So the relationship between the community and the companies was always very tight. Like the whole reason for a lot of the existence of those communities was as a result of sort of the labor that those chemical plants created. And you had railroad tracks that ran through the town that carried coal from the coal mines further south to the chemical plants in order to fire the plants and fire the machines that created the chemicals, right? So there's this way in which the whole economy is centered on the work of these chemical plants. And then when those chemical plants go and all that work goes, um, there's really nothing that replaces it. The biggest employers in West Virginia at this point are Walmart and the state government. And those are very extreme in terms of like the qualifications required to need those jobs, right? There was a time in West Virginia where with a high school diploma, you could solidly put yourself in the middle class, you could retire with a pension, and you could be taken care of. And I think that in the 70s and 80s, that was very much the case. You didn't need to go to college, you didn't need to have some advanced degree, like working at the plant was a viable way to make a life for yourself and your family. Mm -hmm. And then that all disappeared. My dad would say NAFTA, Um, but you know, (laughs) whatever it is, that work disappeared and there just nothing replaced it. And so I think what's happened since then is a really intense decline of just like the health of the economy and the health of the communities. We've seen a big spike in opioid use and overdoses. There is a level of visible struggle that I didn't see growing up in the same way. And I think that then you had in 2016, a candidate come along and offer an explanation. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the right explanation, but it was an explanation that the reason why all of this decline had happened was because of this group and that group and the other group and this thing and that thing. And so for people who are living in a place where they're witnessing the decline, where they're experiencing the effects of that decline, 
they want an explanation. That's all any of us wants is a narrative. We want to understand why things are happening to us. And only one party offered an explanation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really do feel like this is a situation where if there was a different narrative, one that wasn't a narrative of blame, one that could explain what happened and also provided a window into like what possibly could come next, I think people would go in that direction. But right now, it's either this really alienating xenophobic narrative or silence. Mm -hmm. uh, and the silence isn't enough. People want to understand. And so they're taking the explanation they're, they're being given. There was a union carbide in my town as well, yes. right outside Parkersburg, also a DuPont chemicals. And so we had two chemical plants, but union carbide, I think went out when I was maybe in high school, we lost that one because I think the whole company went under or right. DuPont is still there. But I remember a lot of my friend's parents working at the plant. Those were good, high paying jobs that had good benefits and everybody knew somebody who worked there. Yeah. And everybody who worked there knew each other. Right. right. And it was mm -hmm. it was very much its own community. And it was a different time in corporations, too. You know, Union Carbide used to have a camp every summer for kids of carbiders that was hmm. free. You could send your kids to camp. They'd learn how to ride horses. They'd learn how to shoot bow and arrow. They um, sponsored every Sunday ice skating for carbide families at the local skating rink. They had a Christmas party every year. I mean, I think it was also a different time in corporate America. I think there was like a benevolence that they wanted to people to think about them. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were benevolent per se, but I think, <laughs> I think there was an attempt at benevolence that now is just gone. Like now we don't have any of it, but you know, I think people did have good feelings in a lot of ways towards their employer. And I think about it as like, so if Cole was the employer for the grandparents, right. Then for a lot of like the, the folks of my parents' generation, chemicals felt very different. Mm -hmm. It felt like a move away from the mines. It felt like a move into a better and safer life and more stable and secure life. And it was in a lot of ways. It also wasn't like it wasn't great for the environment. It wasn't always safe. But I think the perception was you were moving up. Mm -hmm. And then when that gets taken away and there's nothing to replace it, you know, where, where do young people go? What are they supposed to do? What are their prospects? They either leave or if they stay, they, they find themselves quite stuck. Mm -hmm. So there's irony, and you, and you just alluded to it, that the company that helped your family prosper was the center of so much tragedy in Bhopal, India in 1984. And your essay, Chemical Bonds, really delves into the notion that chemicals are both the foundation of all life and that which can destroy all life. But it's also the story of how what a parent believes isn't necessarily what a child believes, particularly as they grow up and see the world through their own eyes. So talk to us a little bit about your process for writing that essay and blending very personal feelings with a nonfiction topic. So I knew very early that this was kind of a crazy thing in my family, right? Anybody who has any sort of awareness around industrial history or industrial disaster history, like the word Bhopal immediately brings a lot of feelings and reactions up. And my dad was kind of at the center of that. Like he was at the center of Carbide's response to the Bhopal crisis. And so it always was this thing that I knew was this pretty complicated and important moment in history that my family had been a part of. But when I would try to write about it, a lot of the time it would just end up being about my dad. And 
I both didn't know enough. I mean, my dad doesn't like to talk about it. I didn't have a lot to go on besides like what he'd written and what I've been able to research. But also like I'm not writing an essay collection about my dad. The point is about <laughs> myself, right? And so I remember I went to the um, Kenyan Review Writers Workshop in 2017 and I took a draft of this essay that was very dad focused. And my teacher for that workshop is an amazing professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Her name is Gita Kotari. And she read the essay and she's like, this essay is not about chemicals. She's like, this essay is about your relationship with your dad. And this essay is about ethics. It's about how your dad understood his ethics at the time and how your ethics have changed and what the relationship is between uh, those two things. And that just sort of like opened a door for me to think about how to turn the lens back on myself so that this didn't end up being an exploration of my dad's experience without any implicating of myself, but so that instead it allowed me to sort of think about who I am in the world and how who I am is shaped by who my dad was and how his experiences ultimately ended up shaping the way I moved through the world. Uh, and that, I think, to me, felt like a much better place to land with that essay, given that I, I do really feel like it's important that in my writing, like the, the point is never to judge anybody else. Mm -hmm. The point is to think about what are our choices and our actions reveal about us? Um, and most importantly, like, what do they reveal about me? What, how am I implicated in any of this? For me, it was really important that, that I came to the place where I realized like anything I'm able to do is because my dad didn't do. Mm -hmm. my dad chose us and now I can choose whatever I want, but that choice is a privilege and mm -hmm. I have it because he didn't exercise it and he mm -hmm. couldn't exercise it because the risks were too high. He didn't have a safety net. If he'd taken those risks, we would have all crashed. So I, I think to me, it was really important to get it to that place. So a couple of your essays discuss womanhood, specifically what that looked like to you as a child in terms of your Indian aunties, the women who were friends of your parents and celebrated important cultural celebrations together. But then in a later essay, you discuss your short hair and how that doesn't fit with what you saw your entire life in terms of typical Indian womanhood. So what do you hope other women, Indian or not, might take from those essays? I think I hope that for all of us, we can just make space for people to just express who they are in lots of different ways and to not feel so caught up in defining what does or doesn't constitute womanhood or what does or doesn't constitute femininity, but instead to just let people express themselves in the ways that feel right to them and accept that as, as what it is. I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to parse out who I was in opposition to what I was seeing. And I think that in retrospect, it would have been a lot easier if it was just like, well, there's not a right way to do this. There are just lots of different ways we could come at this. And here are some, but there's also all of these other ways that you could come at this. And so mostly I would just like for us to be more forgiving with ourselves and with other people as to like how gender expression looks and how it happens and, and be less sort of confined to traditional norms around like what we think those things are supposed to look like. So one of my big pet peeves is like dress codes. And I just hate dress codes, um, especially because they primarily affect women. Yeah. But rather than looking at ourselves and going, what is it about this, the way this person's dressed or however this person looks or whatever it is, why aren't we first asking, why is this making me uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, we automatically go, well, you're doing it wrong. Well, they feel totally fine with, with whatever they're wearing or however they look. 
but we start with the problem is them instead of the problem is us. Right. Yeah. And I think really all of us, even just the idea that there is a problem with any of us is kind of the issue, right? It's just, I think we all have learned certain rules Mm -hmm. around what we are supposed to be and do and what we're not supposed to be and do. And many times those rules I think we're actually created by patriarchy. I don't think they were really created by women in the first place. (laughs) Uh, So I think then we just end up like enacting those rules on each other. And instead of just supporting each other and being like, well, whatever you're bringing to the table, like we accept that and we welcome you. We end up excluding people from the table because of our perceptions of what you should and shouldn't do and should and shouldn't be. And it doesn't really serve us. It doesn't serve any of us. Your collection can be read as a book of essays, or it can also be read like a loosely pieced together memoir because it does sort of go chronologically from your childhood up into adulthood. Do you think that there is a distinction between the two? And are there things that you would add or subtract if it were a straight up memoir? I think that the essay collection let me play with form in a way that would be harder to do in the context of a memoir. So, for example, having that Spice Catalog essay, mm. I think if you were writing a, a traditional memoir, having something like that in there would, would feel abrupt, I think, to a reader, because I think their expectation would be like, if this is the form, the form is memoir, then the narrative is going to be pretty traditional and the arc is going to be pretty traditional. And so then having these more lyric pieces that really go in a totally different direction would feel jolting and would not feel like it made sense within the context of the form. I think for me, what I love about an essay collection is you can play with form. I mean, in this essay collection, there's a list essay. There's a hermit crab essay that's directions. There's a spice catalog essay. There are essays that are collage, right? Where there's not necessarily a really strongly articulated overarching arc, but the collage is what lets you understand by the end of it what the themes are in the essay. Those experiments with form, I I think you would be less likely to see so many different experiments in the context of a memoir. And so for me, that's why I think it lands more in the essay collection Mm -hmm. box. Although I would agree with you that the way we organized it was largely chronologically to support, I think, people's comprehension and to support them in sort of feeling like the arc of a lifetime over the story. I felt like it gave me permission also to like leave things out. There's a large chunk of college and graduate school and beginning of teaching that's not in this collection. I can leave things out and those things are probably going to be my next essay collection, but they weren't the focus of this one, you know? And so there's, there's less pressure, I think, to account for all of the details of life. It's a little more flexible. So there's a book plate that's been placed in some of the books that are going out to bookstores, and it has this quote. I can post it on our Instagram, but it's very pretty. It's illustrated with flowers around it, but it says, I don't know what it means to possess a love of place so strong you remain root-bound even when the soil sometimes rejects your very existence. And that is a line from your book. And I'm wondering why you chose that particular sentence to go on the book plates. It's a great question. So that book plate is a collaboration with an amazing artist collective in Pittsburgh called Just Seeds. I'm a middle school teacher and I've been hanging their art in my classroom for the last like 15 years probably. And so when it came time for this book, I really wanted to collaborate with them to make a book plate. 
a lot of the artists are Appalachian. I thought it was a really awesome opportunity to lift up Appalachian artists, lift up this awesome arts collective and collaborate on a piece together. And because it was going to be a book plate and because they're visual artists, I wanted to think about an image that lended itself to visuality. And so that idea of roots and thinking about plants, it was really like form and image leading us, right? So we were looking for pieces in the book that would lend themselves to like an imagistic representation. I think that quote is beautiful. I think it's funny because when you read it as an independent sentence versus when you read it in the essay, it means different things. Because in the essay, it's really like, I don't understand this. Like, I don't know what it means. <laughs> and when you read it as the plate, it makes it seem like I don't know what it means about me that I love this place so much. And it's like actually an interesting experience of uh, what does it mean when like a sentence gets taken out of context? (laughs) It actually means something totally different, but it's beautiful. And I wish that I felt that way all the time. I don't necessarily. We basically were able to highlight two flowers that are really significant in my life. One is Arabian jasmine, which is just like what I associate with India. It's the smell inside of India for me. And then the other is American honeysuckle, which is Mm. the flower of my childhood in West Virginia. And so being able to put those two things on the book plate as the plants that sort of represent my identity was like a really beautiful opportunity. But it certainly was a, a case of the need for images leading in the decision for what quote we chose. For readers out there, if you're able to get one with the book plate in it, you definitely should. But I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is, I think what you're referring to is the spiceless chapter, the one called the Hindu Hillbilly Spice Company, Indo-Latin Flavors Blend. And it's sort of about how your family had to adapt to American culture coming from India. And I loved that you used food and simple recipes to show the juxtaposition between what your family had to do to assimilate, but how they kept a piece of who they are. So your mother would make spice blends and store them in mason jars. And a mason jar is one of the most iconic symbols of Southern culture, but your family adapted. And so I feel like this could also be larger metaphor. So Will you talk about that a little bit? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's right, right? I I think this about my parents more than I actually do about even any of the other Indian families who we lived with in the Chemical Valley. My parents had people over for dinner pretty much every weekend. But who was coming over for dinner was anybody's guess. Like sometimes it was Indian people. Sometimes it was neighbors. Sometimes it was people from the plant. And my parents, I think they just felt like hosting and breaking bread was like how they built relationships. But they became more and more adventurous in terms of like what they were cooking and putting on the table. And I do think on some level, they both felt like they were ambassadors for their country and their culture. And so many, many people got their first introduction to Indian food at the Vashia's house. There wasn't an Indian restaurant in Charleston, which is the closest city, until the mid-90s. So for a good 20 years there, if you were eating Indian food, you were eating it at our house, right? (laughs) There was that. But then there was also, how do we take Appalachian food and like make it make sense on our table? And so my mom like would make fried apples or she would make biscuits or she would, she learned how to pickle and she learned how to make salsas because we had a huge garden and it was like, what are you going to do with all of this produce that comes in at the same time? So she learned how to can and pickle and preserve. She sort of like opened herself up to thinking about how to incorporate parts of Appalachian cuisine and culture into our home. And I think that was the thing that allowed them to really build relationships across communities. 
it wasn't like they were giving up where they came from, right? It was, we ate Indian food for dinner five nights of the week. So it wasn't like that was going away, but it was really about where, where can these elements of Appalachian cuisine, where can they fit on our plate? How can we make them part of what we are as well? And I think in some ways, when you talk about it being a metaphor, I think it is kind of a metaphor for like what I wish we were able to do as a nation, but what I don't think we're able to do right now. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's got their own plate right now. And uh, and there's not a lot of looking for like how someone else's traditions or ways of being could also have space on your plate. I think it's yeah. kind of like I have my plate and you have your plate and we're at separate tables instead of that like ability to look outward and say, well, actually there might be some similarities here or like maybe we could find some common ground or maybe there are things that I'm really interested in from your plate or you're interested in from mine. I feel like we've reached a a tough place in this country where that openness feels like it is hard to find. And I, I wish we were more open to thinking about how our plates could represent a, a broader range of experiences. Well, you know, as I said before, I grew up in West Virginia, and there are many things that I am nostalgic about. Um, I love the mountains. I love the Four Seasons. But one of the reasons I never wanted to return after college was because there was virtually no diversity there. But I would say there was only like a handful of families from other countries, and it wasn't enough to have their own little stores or to have, you know, restaurants of their cuisines, nothing like that. And I wanted to see things in the broader world. And as a whole, West Virginia just didn't offer that, at least not when I was there in the 80s. So when I go back to visit, though, I see a little bit of progress in that realm. And after spending time writing this book and thinking about these issues and talking to readers, do you think that there's change coming? You know, I do. I think what feels really different to me now is people's willingness to be visible. I do think that when I was growing up, my parents sort of felt like the way to be safe was to keep our heads down. And I think that that mentality has changed now. I think people are actually more of the the thought that the way to be safe is to make ourselves visible. That visibility actually ensures our safety because visibility makes it hard for people to erase us. And so I do feel like there's some pretty exciting movement in Appalachia. Queer people in Appalachia are getting louder. Progressives in Appalachia are getting louder. There are people of color in Appalachia who are finding ways to connect with one another. There are people who live at the intersection of all three of those things. When I was growing up, I thought I was the only one. And I didn't have a way to find anybody or see anybody who was like me. And I think now that's not the case. Even if there's not a person in your town, social media creates a space where you can find other people like you and you can connect with them. And so it's like, okay, in West Virginia, there might be 20 of us, but we have ways to connect to each other, right? (laughs) And connecting in those ways like allows us to organize and allows us to advocate and allows us to build visibility. I do think that that is different now. I also think that with increased visibility, there's also incredibly intense erasure effort happening. And I think the West Virginia legislature in this past session made that really clear when they're trying to prevent young people from reading books that have queer characters or characters that are people of color when you can't learn history. I didn't learn that history growing up. And Amy, I'd be curious if you did, but like, no, right. (laughs) Right. We didn't learn it and it wasn't against the law, but we didn't learn it. Right. Like I didn't know about Blair Mountain until I was 30, but it's embarrassing, but it's true. So that was like social silence. That wasn't a law saying people couldn't teach it and they still weren't teaching it. 
Now, when you make it illegal to teach it and you're criminalizing the teaching of those things, like it's, it's a whole other kind of silence. And so I feel like there's both of those things happening at the same time really people starting to push for visibility, to push for an Appalachia that represents everybody and that supports everybody. And also, as people are more visible, there also does feel like this equal pressure coming from the legislative world to erase people. Hmm. So I think both of those things are true at the same time. And I sort of feel like what we're trying to figure out now is who's going to win in a way, like who's who's going to dominate in this in this showdown. I highly recommend people read your book because as you can see, we had lots of questions for you. We could have come up with a lot more questions to ask you. Your book is just ripe for discussion. It's really great. But I think this is a good place for us to stop right now, take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Awesome. We are back with Nima Avashia and with Carrie. Carrie, I was gone last week. Usually we talk during the week at points to, you know, just hear what the other one's reading and what we're doing. And I don't know what you've been reading. So enlighten me. I found a book and you'll know when I tell you the title, you'll know why it spoke to me. It's called The Cat Who Saved Books by <laughs> Suzoka Natsukawa. And I think that's all I need to say. I could stop now and that would be cats my review. Cats and books, yes. Cats, cats and books. books. Okay. Uh, this is a novel about a character named Rintaro Natsuki. He's a high school student who has up until recently lived with his grandfather who used to run a used bookshop. His grandfather has died and Rintaro is grieving. And a classmate of his begins to visit the store and check up on him since he's been missing so much school. Well, one day when the store is empty, a cat walks in, but this is no ordinary cat. It is a talking cat who tells Rintaro that his help is needed. Books need to be saved. So this begins the first of three quests by Rintaro to try to save books. And each quest involves a passage through a labyrinth. So cats, books, labyrinths. I could stop right here, okay? (laughs) So The Cat Who Saved Books is about a cat, and it is about books, and it is about labyrinths, but it is also about grief and about friendship. And it's about discovering that there is more to yourself than what you or anyone else might have ever expected under ordinary circumstances. And it's it's relatively short. So if any of those things speak to you, I think you will enjoy this book. Now, this is a book in translation. It is. Correct? Yes, Okay. it is. Now, Book Riot had an article the other day about how cats have special meaning in Japanese literature or culture. Yes. Have you heard of that? Well, I, I had when you sent me that article. Oh, did um, I send it to you? <laughs> you did. I didn't you even said, remember doing yes, that. Yes, I did read that article. And it talked about how the idea of cats being part of a book is sort of about discovery and about finding out something about yourself. And so that is a perfect tie-in because that's essentially what the book is all about. Uh, Rintaro is, he's called a hikikomori which is a term for, it's typically young men in Japanese culture who keep themselves very isolated. They don't have a lot of social outlets or any social outlets. And so at the beginning of the book, he labels himself that way and he keeps sort of harping on it. I'm just a hikikomori. But by the end of the book, as I said, he's discovered that there's more to him than just that label. 
it was just a nice story, you know, kind of makes you feel good. And who doesn't sometimes need one of those stories? You did tell me at one point that you had bought that book, but I think I looked up reviews and somebody commented that they thought that the cat was a real jerk. Is the cat a jerk? No. I mean, here's the thing. The person who said that doesn't like cats. You know, I can totally tell they don't like cats because I mean, the thing is I live with two cats and they are sort of jerks in the same way. And, and Nima, I have a philosophy that middle schoolers are like cats because they want you on their terms. You know, if, if you approach them, they're like, I don't want any part of this, but if you let them approach you, things are usually going to turn out okay. And so, yeah, the cat is a little bit gruff. But he's sort of a sweetheart underneath, you know, kind of that rough exterior, but but good down further below, which is also like middle schoolers, I think. I, I would say that person who wrote that review just has it out for cats. Okay. Yeah, ignore right. that review. All right. Fine. <laughs> I'm now imagining my whole classroom as cats. So this is helpful. <laughs> well, Nima, what have you been reading? I recently finished a book called Drown Town, which is by Jane Moore Waldorf. Um, yes, I went to a book reading that she did here in town a few weeks ago. It's sitting on my nightstand. It's a lovely cover, beautiful cover. It's a beautiful cover and it's a beautiful book. Um, and it actually, Carrie, I feel like you might know more about this area of Kentucky. I didn't know, but there is an area in Kentucky called the Land Between the Lakes. Yes, I just went there during the height of COVID when I was terrified to go anywhere. I was like, okay, we're okay if we stay in Kentucky. And so we went to the Land Between the Lakes and it was awesome but the crazy thing about the land between the lakes is it didn't always exist yes Um, and so this book is a set of linked short stories that kind of go back and forth in time between the time when there were actually communities that then were subsequently flooded out in order to make way for the land between the lakes and then now where the the descendants of the families that were flooded out are kind of still trying to return to this place and try to figure out what their connection is to it now that the the actual homes that they grew up in have been covered with water and yet they still feel drawn back to this place because of its sort of like connection to their history. It's a really, really beautiful book. Characters show up in multiple of the stories in the collection. So you kind of get to know people. And it just was for me like a really big lesson in sort of how sometimes beautiful places that get created, like you don't think about what was there before. And and that in this case, there was like a series of communities that were there. And then it was decided that they would they would be flooded out for the purposes of creating this recreational space. And, and what are the legacies of that when you, when you take people's homes away from them in a way? Really, really beautiful book. When I went to her reading, she also mentioned that there are spots there now, especially when the water table is low, uh, that you can see like the tops of some of the buildings mm-hmm. and things peeking out, which is kind of an eerie thought. Well, Amy, I know you put the pause on the Dave Grohl book, but I haven't heard about uh, your latest read. So what is it? Yes, I was listening to that book on audio because you had so highly recommended it. I got about halfway through and then my loan ran out and they took it back it was through Libby. And so now I'm on the waiting list. So it'll probably be like another six weeks or something before I get to listen to the second half of the book. 
Um, But the book that I'm going to talk about today is called Death in the Air, the story of a serial killer, the great London smog, and the strangling of a city by Kate Winkler Dawson. And one of my favorite books of all time is Devil in the White City by Mm -hmm. Eric Larson. And this is a real classic of true crime literature. And it's the book that introduced me to the genre. So since reading that book years ago, I'm always on the lookout for other great true crime books that meld some history of a place with the factual narrative of of crimes that maybe took place near there. But I'm usually looking for more than just like gruesome details of a crime. I really want that history there too. And this book really rises to the occasion. So like Devil in the White City, there are two true life stories going on in this book. The setting is early 1950s London. And first there's the required story of a crime. And in this instance, we are introduced to the case of a convicted serial killer named John Reginald Christie, who strangled somewhere between six to eight women. The number is still somewhat in dispute, including his wife. And he hid the bodies in his flat or he buried them in the backyard. And he is one of the most infamous serial killers in British history. The other story is about the great smog of London of 1952. In fact, the term smog came into use after this event. And London in its history is known for its fogs. But what made this one different is that there was a weather system that was trapping all the fog over the city. But it was what that fog was made up of that was different. It was December and it was cold. And at this time, there was no electrical heat in most homes. People heated their homes through coal. And Britain was having a lot of financial hardships after World War II. And at that time, they could not afford to distribute, and I'm putting this in air quotes, clean coal, which would be like your anthracite coal to households. It was tightly rationed. So instead, the government was promoting this new cheaper coal for households to burn, and it was called nutty slack. And it consisted of basically coal dust and little small lumps of coal. So the nutty slack didn't really give off nearly as much heat, which meant that people had to put more and more of it in their fireplace to get it to to heat their residences. And it was immensely dirty. Much of it would go up the chimneys and out into the air. But reading about it reminded me of descriptions I've read about dust storms during the Dust Bowl, like in Oklahoma in the United States, where dust and dirt could not be kept out of houses and it would like seep under doorways and windows or down chimneys. And the particles were just covering everything. So this fog lasted for four days. Public transportation had to be shut down. Schools were shut down. And the death toll ended up being close to 12,000 people during those four days and up to several months after. It killed people with lung issues, but also those with compromised health in other ways. There was also long-term damage to people because of the high percentage of sulfur dioxide and other dangerous gases that were in the air. And the British government kind of tried to fudge the numbers a little bit. Um, And they said a lot of those deaths, especially in the, the month or two after the fog, were due to an influenza. But Fairly recently, like within the last 15 years, I think, Carnegie Mellon University had a a team and they did studies and they found that influenza did not cause those deaths, that it was just residual effects from the smog. So in both of these stories, there is a killer, a killer that strangled its victims, and both cases resulted in reforms to British law. So in John Reginald Christie's case, it resulted in the end of the death penalty in Britain. Because before this, anyone convicted of murder was automatically executed. But in this case, there was some evidence that another man was executed for two murders that they think Christie probably committed. And so after that, Parliament chose to end the death penalty 
in that country. And the smog of 1952 led to the Clean Air Act in Britain and has been used as a template for similar laws around the world. The author, Kate Winkler Dawson, she teaches at the University of Texas School of Journalism and has produced documentaries and been a news writer and a producer. So I felt like this was definitely well-researched. And so if you loved Devil in the White City like I did and are looking for something with that feel, you should give Death in the Air a try. Sounds awesome. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, Nima is going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back. Nima, are you ready for your questions? I am ready. All right. Number one, you teach civics, middle school civics. So what's one of the topics that students most eagerly respond to? My students are very, very interested in the criminal justice system. I think it's a a part of our country that we don't spend enough time talking about or thinking about or trying to understand. Um, And for young people, I think they want to understand why things are the way they are, um, why incarceration rates look the way they look, and what we can do to make things different in our country. That's interesting. I think there's there's a special kind of person that can be a middle school teacher. <laughs> so, so what what made you want to work with that age group? Um, so many cats, right? <laughs> uh, I actually think that that thing about cats and middle school students is the thing that really appeals to me, which is they are really, well, I don't know about cats, but middle school students <laughs> are really trying to figure themselves out. They're at this really powerful place in their identity formation. And it's a place where I think educators can play such an important role in supporting them and figuring out who they are, who they want to be in the world, what they're interested in. You know, sometimes I think by the time you get to high school, we've lost kids. Um, There are some kids who have disengaged and middle school feels like this point where like you can really catch a kid and keep them from disengaging and help them to sort of find the path that works for them. And to me, that that feels really important. They're so curious. They're super interested. They want to talk about the world. They want to understand what's happening in the world around them. And they're just hungry. They're really hungry for learning. And that's a really lovely thing to be in community with. Middle school students are constantly asking questions and wanting to understand why is it this way and why can't it be a different way? Okay. So question number two, you now live and work, as we were saying, as a middle school teacher in Boston. So moving to the Northeast had to have been a little bit of a culture shock. So (laughs) what was one of the first things about living in Boston that was perplexing or surprising? People don't say hi here. (laughs) You walk down the street. And I mean, I just was raised that if you see someone, you greet them. And here you greet people and they look through you like you're not even there. It's really disturbing. Um, It hasn't been knocked out of me. Like I've lived here almost 20 years and I still greet people. And yet they still just look through me. And I, I just feel like it's a very odd phenomenon. I'm like, I'm not trying to hurt you. Just saying hello, and yet, you know, it's like I might as well not be there. I have not gotten used to that. Even after all this time, it just feels cold. All right, last question. So what noise or sound do you love, and what noise or sound do you hate? We go up to Maine in the summer, usually for about a week, and I love the sound of the tide coming in. Oh, yeah. Um, It's an awesome sound. I never get tired of it. And the sound that I hate is that in my classroom, my heater is broken and it sounds like there's a person in it. Um, (laughs) It's like 
thump, thump, thump. So it's like very hard to learn because there's this like person inside the heater banging on it, trying to get out. I would like that sound to be done. Where in Maine do you often go? We just went to Maine this past fall and I loved it so much. Uh, We go up to the Harpswells, which are outside of Brunswick. Okay. These little fingers that go out into the Casco Bay. Um, Oh, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Well, Nima, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find Nima on Instagram at Avashia and at her author website, NimaAvashia.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.